welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, 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 everybody. Let's roll. Another knock on podcast. Actually, for all of you listening to the podcast, you're kind of coming in a little bit late because all my Instagrammers, we've been live for like 10 minutes now, just shooting the bull. So podcasters, you're, you kind of walked into the party a little bit late. I've already got, that's a uh, Navy SEAL Foundation, Killcliff Yeti jingling with a killerita and i've already been telling stories and doing virtual tours with all of my insta followers i call them insta friends i don't think they're insta followers they're insta friends so that's an official knock-on term too it's copyrighted so if you try to steal insta friends then just realize i don't have a lawyer that will come after you but i do have former navy seals that drive black ford trucks and jump off mountains and airplanes and they they'll beat you up so all right had some awesome questions from all of you um on my instagram post this morning made a post just letting you know i was going to go live wanted to know what you wanted to hear about and holy smokes, we need to just people. Let's let's start a you fund me thing. Let's start an, a TV channel called Awesome Archery uh, International AAI, and it's all just going to be me sitting in my office just answering archery questions, literally until I die. Because I think we could do it. Because your questions are amazing, and um, yeah, you make it easy for me. You just ask questions, and I just kind of spew it out there. So Sharon likes it too, because what happens is I get to like get all of my archery verbiage out for the day, and then as long as I do it by 4 o'clock, which we're a little bit late today, that means we're going to get to hit happy hour. And one thing Sharon and I would like to do, um, we decided now that we're empty nesters, we actually want to start a program called um, The Happy Couple. And this this Instagram couple is going to be me and Sharon, and all it's going to be is reviews of happy hours all across the world. <laughs> We're just going to hit happy hours and give you our honest opinion on beverages, uh, appetizers, and uh, the ambience of the room. So if you're uh, into happy hours, which we're, we've decided now that we're kind of just lonely single parents sitting in our house while our son parties at college and is cool and all that stuff. We just have to figure out something to do with our lives. So evidently, I'm going to answer archery questions for eight hours in the morning. And then we're going to go to a happy hour and 
find new cool places. So if you're a owner of a cool place, then shoot me a message. Sharon and I will come and enjoy beverages and food. And I also have good friends that enjoy that with me, like my buddy Eric Griba, Eric and Kate. If he's not smacking faces and hockey pucks, he'd come. Um, or let's see who else would come. Chad and Abby would come. They like to come. They like to party with me and Chaz, so we could uh, do some smoke drinks off the Traeger with those guys. But yeah, we've got tons of good friends that would do it. So enough of the nonsense. That was four-minute rambling, but I don't have ads, so I'm allowed to do that. Um, Let's jump into the first question. And dang it all, the wrench head, once again, I've recognized your name. You're always fast to comment, so you're lucky. Uh, He's asking, first question is, do you use a green or a white light going to the stand in the morning and why? So I'm a big, big advocate of a green LED light, a green uh, light, not because of knock-on, but because I've found that deer definitely um, respond much less to green lights, red lights, Um, I've had them act either way. I've had some instantly um, react to a red light and some not. But with the green, um, it's been by far the best color for me. Um, And honestly, for the last four years, I believe, I've been using Cyclops lights. Like A lot of people ask me about the little clip light I have on the top of my hat. That's made by Cyclops, and they're super cheap. You can get them in a little pack. I'll go and buy like 10 packs of them. Um, They have green or white, but I always get the green. It's kind of just enough light for me to be able to look in my backpack in the dark or you know, pretty much anything that's within a six-foot radius of me. It has enough lumens for that. Otherwise, they actually have a headlamp that is um, also green or white that works really, really good. Uh, but yeah, I'm definitely um, an advocate of green lights. I learned that long, probably over 10 years ago, um, down in Mississippi, where I was introduced to the first little green stream light. And I was just really impressed by the fact that I could get in down there, even on those crazy, uh, crazy smart deer down in the south, and they did not respond to it. So, green light. Um, Next question here is from Jair Bears Workshop saying, I have a stock Hoyt charger, which pretty much means you just have a Hoyt charger, um, and would like to increase my effective killing range on whitetails, but feel the bow should be quieter. Any tips uh, or specific silencers or adjustments you would make? So, To quiet your bow or to make your bow as quiet as possible, there's going to be several things that you can do and several things that you need to know that increase or decrease noise on a bow. So first off, when people ask me specifically, you know, is it bad for me to buy a 70 pound bow and back it down to 63 pounds? Is it not as accurate? And the question is, it's just as accurate. The accuracy, you don't have to worry about the accuracy if you're doing everything right. But 
when you back limbs out, the more you back them out, the less tension you will have on your string. So that does a couple things. One, any variance you make on your string, specifically with your release hand, twisting your, you know, your release hand or changing your release angle, it'll start to move that string more because the string's lighter or the string's weaker, so to speak, uh, because of the lighter pressure on it. Now, the other thing is when you back your limb bolts out, since that string does have less tension, it will have more oscillation. So it's going to have more vibration or more residual vibration. So by tightening the limbs and tightening the tension on the string, uh, you will have essentially a quieter bow that doesn't continually vibrate. The other thing is on the bows, especially the ones with the string stops or the stealth shots, what you want to do is you want to take your bow and you want to make sure that two things. You want to make sure that if you have your string and you've got that, you know, the string stop that goes up against it, you don't want there to be a gap because if you're if there's a gap, that string will isolate and vibrate on that. And you also don't want the string stop to be pushing too much on the string to where the string is starting to bend because what will happen is it slaps that first, then the string bends forward and it actually pushes your knocking point down. So what you want to do is take that little set screw that the carbon rod that your string stopper is attached to, most of them are carbon, It'll go to the riser. You take that set screw and you lighten it up so that you can move the string stopper in or out very easy. And what I do is I just take my bow and tip it upside down so that gravity lets the string stop come down until it's just touching the string. And when it's just touching the string, go ahead and put your Allen wrench in and tighten that back down. Now, if you feel like you are getting a little bit of buzz from that still, you can actually take, um, you can go and get like Dr. Scholl's um, like blister, you know, like for having, if you've got like foot blisters that make moleskin and you can take that thin moleskin and stick it on that rubber piece right there. And when you, when it gets really cold out and that rubber hardens, you won't have near the buzz on that as well. Now, the other thing is, um, when it comes to string silencers, there comes a point where you add too much weight to the string and it starts to increase noise again. Um, and then also you're talking about having more of an effective long range. The more weight you add to your string, the more it oscillates and also the more the speed decreases. So both of, the, both of those things are going to slightly prevent your accuracy downrange. So what you want to do is make sure you minimize your weight on your string. So kisser buttons are added weight. Brass knocks, added weight. Um, peep tubes, added weight. Peep tubes are also noisy. Um, so having tied knocks, having a, um, a loop, a tied loop instead of a metal loop, having just a simple peep sight, not having a kisser button, all of these things are really going to help uh, silence the string, keep it quiet. And then the last thing is going to be the weight of your arrow. So if you're, if you're a speed person, you're a speed freak, 
and you're shooting, you know, a, a fast bow with a super light arrow, then it's going to have more noise. So what your bow sounds like when it fires is really relative to the weight of the arrow um, that you're shooting out of it because the arrow absorbs energy as it's fired. So what happens is once you shoot, if that arrow is super light and it's a very, very thin wall around the entire radius, which is probably why it's light, very thin wall, it's going to absorb less of that energy as it goes out of the bow and your string, because it's so much faster, it's going to probably have a louder clunk and a little bit more vibration. Whereas if the arrow is heavier, you are going to have a much quieter setup. So that's why, you know, you look at someone that shoots their outdoor arrows out of their target bow and it has one sound. And then when they're shooting their indoor arrows for Vegas it has a completely different sound it's all relative to the type of arrow, the material in the arrow, because that's absorbing energy. And then also the weight of the arrow, because obviously the faster it comes off the string gives a different sound as well. So uh, there you go. A couple things you can do to help quiet your bow down and also increase accuracy. So um, let's see. Elite Shooter 55 is asking how far... Um, do deer range during the rut compared to non-rut times? Even with cover, food, and water, can you keep them from ranging during the rut? And the answer to that is no. Without a fence, without a high fence, you're not going to keep them from ranging. Um, it's pretty much like you can have the most obedient lab on the planet. And I mean, I'm talking a lab that will do everything you say. But when there's a female in heat that walks through the yard, uh, good luck. If that thing has its nards, uh, it's all fair game. And that's pretty much what it boils down to is the basic, I guess, building blocks of Mother Nature. And that's male, female, and attraction. So... Uh, yeah, you're not going to be able to stop them, even if you have the food and the cover, um, which is why there's a few things. One, I'm not really an advocate of doing a lot of deer herd control. Now, in certain areas, for example, the place where I hunt um, down in Oklahoma, you have to do spotlight counts, and the doe numbers are incredibly high, so you have to take some does. However, the places that I hunt here in Iowa, I'm not an advocate of shooting does, um, mainly because I like having a doe factory because when the rut happens, that's why I continue to bring in bucks that I don't know anything about because they're coming to where the ladies are. And that's my personal um, methodology of hunting. I know it's not a QDMA uh, type methodology, but I can just tell you for someone that has um, relatively low amounts of land to hunt in the different areas that I do hunt, some of the areas where I have permission, the properties aren't that um, necessarily that big. So I feel like having does there is the best thing possible. And that's why I'm also a big advocate of um, well, several years ago, one of my pro staffers, Waylon Byers, um, shot a great buck and it was a good lesson 
because of the fact he planted a small food plot. There were does coming to that food plot all the time. And even though he wanted to take a doe and fill a doe uh, tag, he saves his doe tags till his buck tags are done. And the reason being is because if you get those does that are every day coming to that food source, coming to that food plot, coming to a pond, whatever, and they're just completely in their routine and you haven't somehow altered that routine or clued them off, then the time is going to come, especially right now, when all of a sudden Big Boy is going to be following one of those does in that pattern. And that's exactly what happened with the buck that I shot. Um, Well, there's two things that happened. One, I went and checked cards on my main farm, and I saw that there was this good buck, the buck that I shot, and he had been in that food plot for two days prior to when I hunted the very first day of the season, which was only five days ago. And and I say that, that's the first day of my season. It was actually 31 days into season. But I did not hunt any because I didn't have any good intel on bucks that were patternable. So my so what I decided to do was let the does get comfortable, let them come in, let them never detect that I'm in there. Let them just totally have their way. And when everything is right, and when I check the card and find that the right deer is there on all those does, then I'm going in for a one-time shot. And essentially, that's what happened. But what 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 also happened was that buck came into the food plot, was following deer, picked up one doe and pushed her out the back of the plot and that was all I saw him and it was like 30 seconds, that was it. Two days later, I, um, well the next day I did not see anything, I did go back to the same spot, did not see nothing, so I completely relocated and that plays into another rule, I never hunt the same thing three times. Um, especially in a row. A lot of times I won't hunt the same stand three times in the same year um, or the same tree. That's kind of one thing that I do. I don't like to, and if I ever get busted, hard, hardcore, just flat out busted where a mature deer looks at me or when does start to look up at me, um, I'm officially out of that tree. That's just how it is. Uh, but anyway, I relocated to another place, which I had actually just knocked on a door and got permission. Uh, was not a place. I was going to that place specifically to hope to find another deer. Um, and then, lo and behold, uh, you know, late morning, I was there for a 13-hour sit. Um, late morning, all of a sudden, uh, luckily I had a camera person because the camera person, Ben, was straight behind me in the tree. And he just said, big, big buck coming. And I turned and looked over his shoulder. And I, as soon as I saw that frame, I said, that's, that's payload, man. And he's like, what? And I said, I said, I'm taking him. And there's a couple lessons to learn off this. The payload, I want to, the video for that, um, I'm just going to let people know it wasn't a good shot. It was um, probably one of the worst shots I've made in quite a while. Um, I hit the buck. Uh, back at the back edge of the liver. Uh, He was on a doe and they were moving um, and I hit him in the back of the liver. So I ended up uh, just making a decision to leave him. 
um, and then left him pretty much half a day uh, and then went in and recovered him, which that was a good story in itself. Um, but, you know, if I wouldn't have had him, I wouldn't have been able to probably see that deer. They probably would have been right under me or past me by the time I had a shot. But the other thing that's a valuable lesson is as soon as I looked and saw what buck it was and knew he was a shooter, and at that point they were 50 or 60 yards out coming straight to our tree, um, I actually just went ahead before he had ever given me my shot, I pulled my bow back, and Ben actually didn't even know I was at full draw. And this is another testament to the brand-new um, RX-1, uh, the Hoyt Carbon RX-1. So I actually, as soon as I saw him, I pulled my bow back. They came in. The doe actually stopped right at the base of our tree, and I could hear her smelling, and he was about 15 yards behind her, and he literally stopped facing us. Um, I sat at full draw with my pin just right square on his chest and just sat there, 20-yard pin on his chest, and I had to stay at full draw for you know well over a minute before he finally turned sideways to actually go to try to cut this doe off. And as soon as he went sideways, I made my shot, and he was, you know, he was actually started to turn and started to move slow. But as soon as I shot, he was actually like really getting ready to sprint after this doe, uh, and I hit him far back. Um, so I was a little bit disappointed in myself, but I'm also... Um, you know, I'm a realist and I know that that happens with bow hunting. Um, and I kind of told Ben, you know, I was going in full kind of description, um, post shot on camera and also during my recovery about what happened. And Ben kind of said, you know, he's like, I just appreciate that you're being super honest about it because he said, there's probably a lot of people that could learn from this. And I said, yeah, that's what I want. I, I want people to learn because someone's going to make the same shot and they're going to handle it differently and they're going to go in and not find uh, this deer. But that deer was off his home range. Um, I actually had pictures of that deer on a property that was over three miles away throughout um, the summer and even uh, even towards the beginning part of the season. Um and that, that was actually three properties away. Um, and I was hoping that that's where I was going to get them. But then all of a sudden I checked the card that was on a property in the middle. And that property is the one that had them on it. So that's why I jumped in that food plot that night. And lo and behold, he came out. But then he left with that doe. And I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe he's going to take the doe to the other property. Luckily for me, the wind was kind of a little bit of a goofy wind. It was a northeast wind switching to east, then switching back to a north throughout the day. And I only had one stand that I could think of that would allow me to sit for the day in that situation. Um, so that's where I went and he came out. So, um, you know, those, those bucks are going to cover ground. And if you don't hold does or you are continually pressuring your spots to where your does are super sketchy or your does become nocturnal, you're going to limit the amount of good buck hunting that you're actually going to have. The does are magnets and the does can help you during the rut, but they have to be there. If they're there, not there, they're not going to help you. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, and no matter if you have food, cover, and bedding, 
uh, you know, food, cover, bedding, whatever, and 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 does you're going to keep them there longer. If you don't have the does, they're definitely going to leave. But the other thing to remember too is. I've experienced a lot of times that really, really mature deer, mature bucks specifically, they have very specific areas that they like to breed does. Um, several years ago, I hunted a deer called that I nicknamed uh, Demolition because I it was actually one of my first weeks that I hunted in Iowa as a resident. And I turned over my shoulder one, one morning and I looked in this little thicket that was about 200 yards behind me and it was actually on my neighbor's property and all of a sudden I could see just this swarm of bucks around this little bitty like half acre pocket and every time a buck would go in there I could just hear this massive fighting and then all of a sudden the the buck that went in would come out and he'd be missing a rack or missing a tine. And it was just, it was almost like, um, you know, we called it the meat grinder in football where one person goes in the middle and you're sitting there just trying to pivot around and they just, they're calling out numbers to come after you. Uh, That's what it was like. But this buck just destroyed every other buck that would go in there and try to get his dough. So I nicknamed him Demolition I hunted him for three years, and every single year during the same five to seven days, he was in that exact pocket, and I, it wasn't a property I could hunt, so I was not able to get in there. I was just trying to be close, but in his case, he had a very specific way of how he was going after does, and what he would do is he would go in the bigger timber, he would make a big pass, run around through there, and all of a sudden I'd see him, he'd have a doe, and he'd just be cutting her and corralling her, and he'd get her and take her right back into that small little patch, and he would hold her there for a day or two days until he bred her, he would breed her, and then he would go right back out on the roam again, and he would just zip out one way or another, hit timber at full speed, running through, find him a doe, and he would just corral her back. And there was a few times where I almost caught him coming by me and almost caught him going back in there with the does, but I just never was able to get make it happen. Um, so that is what happens. And the other thing, too, is uh, late season um, – Late season is another time, too, where if you don't have food, you're highly likely that you're going to lose your deer to someone that does. And last year, the buck that I shot for my late season tag, and kind of my rule, if if I'm going to be truthful, my rule for myself um, for the late season tag last year was the first one that I had filled in several years, mainly because... I have a rule that if the deer that are local to properties that I hunt make it through the gun season and I see them late season coming to food, I'll let them pass because I know they've made it through gun season. They're going to make it to next year and they're going to get bigger. Um, but keep in mind too, I you know when I make those decisions, I had already filled a tag. So it's not like I've gone the whole season without getting a deer. So if you haven't got your deer yet and you're seeing that buck that you want during the late season, obviously 
don't think like I do because you want to enjoy hunting and you want to be able to get that deer. Um, but you know, I'm just here to tell you that during the late season, the bucks that I shoot are bucks that I do not know. And if I'm in my blind and a buck I don't know shows up, that is a hundred percent going to be the buck that I shoot because I know that he's just coming from some far farm that just does not have food and he's coming in. So food is the name of the game for late season. Uh, let's see here. Eric Faye is asking, uh, do you cook backstraps on the Traeger? Absolutely. Jeez. I made this salad. If you're a Costco person, there's an Asian salad at Costco um, it has cabbage and cabbage, carrots, and cilantro in it, and then it's got like an Asian sauce with um, some wall or some uh, cashews and some little crunchy things. So I actually took that salad and I whipped it all up and I grilled my back straps uh, or I grilled back straps last night and with my leftovers. I cut them up into small little pieces and I mix it in that um, Asian salad and I toss it all around and then I put um, just a little bit of the Asian sweet chili sauce on there. If you've ever seen that in the store, I put a little bit of that in there and then I took just like literally like about as much as you would put on a hot dog. I put about that much um, barbecue sauce on that on the salad as well. Um, and this is all in a big salad bowl. It was the whole, um, packet of the slaw or the Asian salad. And it was, I think it, it could have been one full tenderloin, but it was, I don't know. It was probably about an eight inch piece, but I cut it all up, put it all in there and just mixed all that. Just toss that thing up and Holy smokes, was that the best salad? But in regards to how do you cook backstraps? You cook them super simple. And actually, um, if you're watching now or if you're listening right away when this is published, um, Traeger actually, I'm going to do a uh, takeover, or not for Traeger, Yeti. I'm doing a Yeti Insta Story takeover for uh, my whole hunt. I documented the whole thing, um, including all the way up to um, taking my deer apart and then. Um, grilling backstraps for the grand finale um so it's really simple probably the easiest thing to do is to come up with a, a a simple marinade um to put them in balsamic balsamic vinegar and some olive oil is really really good and then simple spices um i really like any of the new traeger rubs are great um they're in the square tin cans um they're good for you as well um, but you could always do some olive oil and balsamic vinegar in a Ziploc bag, put your backstrap in there and marinate it for a few hours in the fridge. That's a simple way. Then season it and uh, cook it, which I'll talk about. The other way is, um, which works really, really good and it's great, is at Walmart there's some Jack Daniels marinade bags. They're it's in the marinade section, but you have to kind of watch out for it because they're actual Ziploc bags and they're folded up 
to about the size of an envelope and they stand them up vertically in boxes. And there's three flavors that they make. They make like a steakhouse, they make um, a teriyaki, and they make a smokehouse, I believe, or um, smoky mesquite is what it's called. Those three marinades are unbelievable and they're in, you literally peel, you rip the top off and it's a big Ziploc. You open it up, you put your back straps in, zip it shut, same thing, lay it flat for an hour, flip it over on the other side for an hour. And then what I do is I'll turn my Traeger on, I'll turn it to smoke, I'll let it smoke for about five minutes um, and that pretty much makes sure that all of the uh, pellets in the pot are cooking. Then, after five minutes, I'll turn mine right up to high, and I'll let it warm up for about five minutes at high. Then I'll take my back strap, I'll put it in there, and I'll cook it for about 18 minutes on high, and then I'll roll it over for a few minutes. And I, I pull mine, um, I'll use a little thermopen to put in there um, to get the temperature, or if you have a Traeger, there's a probe with it. But I pull mine off at 130 degrees. Um, I'll pull them off at 130 degrees. I'll take it and I'll either wrap it in foil or butcher paper. Um, and then I'll stick it in one of my little Yeti flips or um, the Yeti bag. And I'll set it in there pretty much while then I do my uh, vegetables. So vegetables on the high setting if you want to do vegetables all you have to do if you want to do broccoli if you want to do squash if you want to do uh, asparagus any of that take olive oil put it over the top of the vegetables kind of roll it in a bowl fluff it up put your seasoning on there and then go ahead and take your vegetables and put them right in the traeger with it still on high and vegetables will take 18 minutes on high uh, you know, if you're cooking like little peppers, if you're doing asparagus, if you're cooking broccoli, cauliflower, any of that is right at about 18 minutes. So what I'll do is um, I'll take that stuff and right at about 14 minutes um, into that 18 minutes, I'll go ahead and um, on my stove, I'll get a cast iron pan and I'll turn it up to high and I'll put some uh, grass-fed butter in that pan and I'll do what's called a reverse sear. So I'll let that butter pretty much just get super hot to where it's just bubbling and cooking. And go ahead and unwrap your back strap and just set it on there and just sear that thing in. Just It'll be searing. And go ahead and sear that one side for about one to two minutes. And then roll it over and sear that other side for about a minute. And then as soon as you flip it and it's searing that last side, run outside turn your Traeger to the cool down position, take your veggies off, come inside, put your veggies out on the everybody's plate, and then just take that reverse seared back strap off, slice that baby up, and dish it out, and holy cow, is that, I'm going to do that tonight. That sounds so good. That's all you have to do. Um, okay, next question here is from Matt Stex is asking torque tuning. Is it real? And if so, is it necessary? Yes, torque tuning is real. So torque tuning um, is a couple things. One, you can, well, there's two different things that, um, that play into torque tuning. One is your sight. 
two is your arrow rest. So your hand is holding the bow in the center and there's two objects going off the bow either direction. So what torque tuning is, is you're actually adjusting your arrow rest or your sight and technically the proportion of both of them together to where when you have incidental or unknown torque in your grip that as your sight moves off and your rest moves the other way that they actually counteract one another to where you're able to still shoot um, a good left to right line because of your hand torque and what's happening is essentially if your arrow rest is behind your hand and your front sight is in front of your hand what happens is if you torque the riser, you're essentially twisting your pin off the target. So you're going to inadvertently move your pin onto the target, not really knowing that it's actually twisted. And what happens is if the arrow rest is at the correct portion behind the hand in, you know, in relation to the sight that's in front of the hand, then what happens is the torque that's on the arrow rest and where the arrow rest is sitting in the back, which is also also now off center, they actually counteract one another to where you're still able to shoot a straight line. And that's why if you look back at when I was shooting professionally, I actually, because I wasn't a big fan of shooting an arrow rest that was super far behind my hand, um, I actually opted to shoot my sight closer to my bow um, for my torque tuning. So a lot of people said, well, why don't you shoot your sight extension all the way out? A lot of people get a brand new sight. Um, I see this all the time with spot hog people, people that get a brand new spot hog sight or something, and they just want to run it all the way out there because they think it looks cool. If your arrow rest is right up against the back of the riser, let me just tell you, any torque that you have in your hand when your sight is that far out in front and yet the arrow rest is close to the hand, you're definitely costing yourself points. And if you learn torque tuning, you can make up a lot of points and a lot more accuracy. I'm a big advocate of not having my sight extended so far out. Um, what having your sight so far out does is it actually increases your scale. So the farther out your sight goes from your bow, the bigger your scale will be, which actually allows you to more precisely choose your exact yardage. And this is pretty relevant for especially like, for example, with a recurve bow where, you know, moving it a little bit. Uh, with something that's that slow makes a pretty big difference. So by taking, essentially, when you're moving your sight away from your bow, all you're almost doing is putting a bigger magnifying glass on your scale because your scale will start to look really big. So that actually plays into another question that I know I'm going to answer later. Um, and it'll be relative. All this stuff's relative. Um, so... I'll talk about that once I come to that question, but torque tuning is necessary, and that's also why a lot of target archers are opting, because they want that precision, they want to be able to shoot 43 and a half yards, not just 43 or 42, they're wanting 43 and a half, 
um, you know, 3D guys that are aiming for a 14 ring or something, um, because they want that fine tune um, in their sight scale, what they're doing to compensate for their sight being so far out is they have an air rest that's much further back, which is where the freak rest comes in. Um, the freak rest, like for my elevate rest, I offer one with a freak bar, which goes behind the tech riser on a Hoyt. And what that allows is for indoor shooters or 3D shooters or outdoor target shooters, um, it allows them to bring that rest back so that they can take that sight forward and still have a good torque tune. And so all you have to do for torque tuning, it would actually work really good if you had a small retina lock, which is what's on the IQ sights, because the retina lock shows you your torque. It's a super awesome device. Um, and I think a lot of bow hunters uh, actually do really well by using that retina lock because it shows them their torque instantly. But what you do for, for torque tuning is you'll draw back and with your bow set up exactly how it is, you'll go ahead and draw back, aim at your target, and just inadvertently go ahead and just twist your hand a little bit so that your pin kind of moves off the target. And then while you've got that slight twist, go ahead and aim your pin in the center, make your shot. You're going to notice that obviously you hit off target. And then what you're going to do is you'll either take your arrow rest and you'll start to move it back, or you can take your sight and move it out further or in closer and do that same thing where you just give it a little torque and see if it starts to improve. And what you'll find is there is a relationship and a correspondence between the arrow rest and the sight to where when you have slight twist in your bow hand, you can still aim center and the arrow will still track there because the arrow rest is making up for the torque in the actual front sight. Um, okay, so next question is, why do you prefer two-finger release over three? Um, and that was from Grant Reed 07. Um, so I personally feel like, um, like I said, a lot of people that shoot strings that are backed out, limbs are backed out, string tension's weak, uh, different things like that. The more fingers you have on a release, the more you can manipulate it. So, you know, if you have four fingers on, you can start to pull more with the pinky in the middle and the ring finger, more so than pull through with the index finger and the middle finger. You can start to roll it. It's easier to turn your hand flat. Then you also have the rocking motion. So you have release angle and you have rocker angle, which is whether or not you're holding your release forward like this or curling it back, you know. Some people put a lot of tension on the index and then relax all the other fingers out to where they're kind of cocking the release forward on the face. Some really lean it back. I personally like just the, I like to go with the natural ergonomics of the hand. So if you take your hand and you close your hand down, you're going to find that with the middle row of your knuckles, which is where you want to hold your release aid, that has a natural slope ergonomics. Your hand, your knuckles are in a slanted line. They're not perfectly straight across. So 
you know, if you're having to extend your pinky and your ring finger in order to rock that release back uh, so that you can tuck it deep in your thumb, that's not a good thing to do. So I like having two fingers so I can keep those fingers straight. I can manipulate however I want with my pinky and my ring finger, and it doesn't matter because I'm simply holding the, the release in two fingers, and I've just found that if I move my hand very much, the two fingers just magnify that difference much, much less than when I have three fingers or four fingers on. If I could shoot with one finger, I probably would, and Randy Ulmer did uh, for many years shoot with one finger, uh, amazingly enough. So, uh, you know, and that was the same thing. It all came down to lefts or rights for my live watchers right now. Um, they're making me shut down. So I'll be right back for all of you. Um, and I'll keep going on these questions here. So yeah, for release position, two fingers, I believe is the best. Now, if you're shooting heavy poundage and you're shooting a lot, um, a lot, a lot, you know, two fingers can start to wear you out. So maybe you want to have a three finger release, but when it comes to just straight accuracy and especially just ease in the field. Um, I've just really found that two fingers is super easy and it's also nice too if you're hunting and you've got gloves on. Um, having your whole hand on a release sometimes gets tough when you've got gloves versus just sticking your index and your middle finger on there. It just seems much, much, much easier. I had to take a little margarita drink there i'm actually drinking i don't know if i said at the beginning i'm drinking a blackberry lemonade kill cliff and i put in a little bit of um i put in a little bit of pre-margarita margarita mix with this it's good and i might add a little something else too um so i think all of you out there if you're contemplating what release I should shoot? Um, gosh, that's a question I get asked continually what release I should shoot. Um, for sure, if you're struggling, here's the thing. People ask me all the time, should I shoot a silverback or should I shoot a knock to it? And the, the, to answer that question, um, and I think silverbacks are now sold out. Um, many silverbacks are still in. And so if you have a smaller hand, I actually shoot mini silverbacks because I don't like going real deep into the release with my fingers. So um, I shoot the minis and get along with them uh, good. But I, I really feel like, and honestly, I don't want to throw Ben under the bus, but I'm going to use Ben as an example. Ben O'Brien was here um Ben O'Brien was here let's see I guess it was five days ago he came and he wanted to come early because he knew that he was struggling a little bit with his shooting so he kind of wanted to get some lessons and some pointers and the first morning we actually didn't hunt um and luckily we didn't because he just told me flat out you know I was kind of mad because it was November 1st and I wasn't in a tree stand at the first morning of November 1st might have been the second but um we were out shooting in the yard and he told me he's like I want to really make sure my sight marks are right so I actually grabbed his bow and I was shooting his bow 
uh, checking the sight marks, got his scale done on his bow. Then I gave his bow back to him and said, just shoot a little bit. So uh, Ben shot at 20 and it was, it was quite a bit high for my liking, but he said, ah, I like it there. That's fine. And then he, we went to 30 and he shot and he was a little bit high. And then we went, I said, well, let's just try your 50. So we went to 50 and he missed the whole target, but he missed the whole target because he more or less, he was pulling back and the bow kept creeping forward and he was pulling back and it would creep forward and he'd pull back again tight and what was happening is every time he would pull back and hit his wall he would then start to focus more on trying to aim than maintaining tension against the back of the cam and he was just sitting there trying to aim and like point the bow and just aim and every time he did the bow would start to go forward and his bow was it was a an aluminum defiant and i pulled it back and i'm like dude this thing feels better than my defiant did i mean it had a great valley it felt super good pulling back it felt really easy the timing was perfect so i told him after he missed the target he's like well i don't you know he kind of had a few excuses on what what went on and i just said hey can i just be honest with you man i mean we're friends can i be honest and he said well yeah he goes that's that's why i'm here he's like i i want you to be honest and i said I said, well, you took everything I told you and you threw it out the window. I'm like, you're doing whatever you want right now. You're not pulling on your, you're not pulling on the cam. You took your silver back. I don't even know where it is. You've got the knock to it now and you're wanting control. So you're wanting to shoot this knock to it. I'm like, you're punching it. I'm like, you're aiming. You're not pulling through. I'm like, you're just trying to aim the bow and like hold the bow in this short little valley and then just punch the trigger when you want to. And I'm like, when you left here in the summer, you told me you were going to commit to the silverback and you told me that's what you're going to shoot. You know, you had target panic when you came. I told you what you needed to do to fix your problem and you've gone on to something else. And I said, so the brutal truth is why you missed the target is because you've got target panic and you're not doing anything I told you. That's the truth. So you know, you have to, when you're trying to decide what release you want, you need to be honest with yourself. What are, what are your issues? Do you have an issue putting your finger on a trigger and pulling through? If you do, then you can't shoot the release as much as you want to. You can't. Now, if you want to have one for the one day you go out and hunt and you feel like you can make one or two good shots with that thumb release, then realize that's your limits and that's it. But every other arrow you shoot, if you make a good shot and you know the fundamentals of shooting with a silverback, then dang it, commit to the freaking silverback and do it. I'm just here to tell all of you, I had to shoot a hinge release for like, I don't even know how long. I was sick and tired of shooting the dumb thing before I could finally grab any release that I wanted and make proper shots without feeling like I wanted to get on the trigger. Now, I mean, I can make perfect shots with my back tension release, and although people were making really cool releases at the time, um, you know, a lot of thumb buttons were getting really popular then, I couldn't shoot one because every time I did, I wanted to punch it. So you have to... You have to recognize what is your deal. And when people say, 
well, can I hunt with a silverback? Hell yeah, you can hunt with a silverback. And honestly, um, a couple things, like even with with uh, my buddy Andy, you know, he shoots a knock to it good. He doesn't shoot it great. He shoots a silverback great. So he, you know, I know part the knock to its feel really good. I'm not, I'm not gonna lie. It's a great release. It feels good. You want to shoot it. It's like, it's literally like having a really kick-ass sports car in the garage, but it's squirrely on the road. And if you have a problem with wanting to stomp on the accelerator all the time, the bottom line is you can't take it out on a rainy day. You know, recognize your limits. Um, I've told this to so many people. You, If you want... If you don't feel like you're shooting good, then what you need to do is you need to get a silver back. You need to go back to the basics, walk through your steps, your steps, and pull through the shot. Pull through the shot. Um, so, you know, I'm looking right now. There's people um, online talking about their experiences with silverbacks, and it's the same way. It's listen. This isn't a magic pill. But I can tell you it is medicine. It's not instant relief, but it is certainly going to heal. But it takes time. Um, target panic is like sprain, okay? Having a case, a streak of bad luck, that's like a break. The sprains take way longer, even though it seems like they're not as bad. But a sprain takes longer to heal, and the same is true for target panic. Target panic will take time to heal, commitment, and every time you feel like it's good enough for you to try to do it, that's when it's most dangerous. And when you're in that point to where you're like, you know what, I've, I, I kind of think I can do it. I kind of, I kind of think I can do it. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna see. When that moment happens, that's when you should be like, okay, Dud said do not do it because this is this is that one little voice in my head that's talking to me and he's he's trying to coax me into just doing this one more time. And you know what? It's only going to take one or two times and you're going to be back to square one. That's the reality and I'm telling you because I've done it. I've done it a lot of times. I hope I never do it again, but if I do, I'm gonna just tell myself, "Damn it! You knew you were on the, you knew you were being risky. You knew you were on the line, and now is the time when you just need to focus on basics, focus on pulling through." And the reality is, um, when it comes to like a coach looking at an archer, when people are making shots with a silverback, those shots look so dang good. That a lot of times if someone, I've had times where I go to a class and someone's had a silverback for a few months and they've worked on it and then they show up to my class and they're like, well, tell me what I need to do. And I'm like, you're doing it. All you need to do is be confident in what you're doing right now is right and just get after it and love archery. Uh, And that's hard for a lot of people because they want to hear more like, well, there's got to be more to it. There's got to be more to it. No, the reality is simplicity is a beautiful thing. And when it comes to art, 
you know, I found that simplicity is art. You know, I feel like one target with three holes in it is art. One target with 30 different holes on it, (laughs) that's a damn mess. So you don't want that. Simplicity is the name of the game. Um, Let's see here. I'm just looking through. Uh, Okay, next question here is from the Brad of all Brads. Hey, Brad, that was a cool. I liked your Kill Cliff video too. That was awesome. Uh, When it comes to indoor target, uh, does FOC become less important or does having over 10% offer better ballistics overall? Um, it's pretty much talking about some arrows that he cut down. Um, he's saying that his FOC is pretty much junk. Um, would it be better if you cut the arrows? So here's the thing. When it comes to indoor, it's a completely different beast than outdoor. All you want to do is have an arrow correct itself no matter how it does it, so that it shoots in one hole at 18 meters, 20 yards, and that's it. You don't have to worry about wind. You don't have to worry about, I mean, I've seen some of the most horrid arrow flights on the planet shoot perfectly clean 300 rounds. The reality is a lot of people are shooting really big diameter arrows trying to get those 300s, but What's most important is breaking the spine down so that the spine of that arrow reacts fastest to the bow so that the bow is most accurate at that distance. It has to stabilize fast. There's no factor for drag, deceleration, nothing. So if you have to put a 12-inch feather on that thing, to get it to work, then do it because it doesn't matter if that thing slows down 50 feet per second at 50 yards because it's irrelevant. You just want it to stabilize fast and get into one hole all the time. That's what you want. So for me, I would always find um, that having a big variety of point weight and then also being able to adjust the poundage on my bow to work with the arrow that I like um, would be best. Now you can change your arrow links, which if you look, a lot of good coaches, especially ones that work with the women um, or the shorter draw people, you'll notice that their arrows are very long indoor and sometimes they're full length. And it's because they have to shoot them that long to weaken them up enough to work with their shorter draw links. So I've certainly had times where if I wanted to try a little bit bigger arrow, like there's times where I wanted to shoot a 2613 and I had to shoot 300 grains in the front of them in order to break them down enough. Or I could shoot my 2315 and I could shoot anywhere from 180 to 220 grains in the front and they worked great. There's also been years where I've had to shoot four inch feathers in order to stabilize fast enough there's also been times where I've been able to shoot a three-inch vein and, it's, and it stabilizes fast enough. FOC isn't as important to me as how that bow shoots at 20 yards. There's no wind. There's no deceleration. All there is is how good can that arrow come out of the bow and track on a straight line into the target. If you worry about that first and foremost, uh, then you're going to have a good indoor setup. Um, and like I've said many times, 
I actually feel like my 2315s and then my super drives from last year, I've actually shoot better indoor rounds with those than I ever have with a big diameter shaft. I actually don't know if I've ever shot a perfectly clean uh, indoor Vegas face with the 27s, but I can do it with 23s, um, with 2315s. Uh, let's see here. Uh, next question here is from EJ Jans 360X. It's a long, that's a long handle, dude. I'm not going to lie. Um, so, uh, would love to hear some tips on getting back into target archery and training after being away for a while. So that's a super good question. Um, yeah, the best thing you can do is commit, commit to yourself Write it down somewhere where you see it every day and write down how many days you're going to commit to being, uh, to doing your training and also write down how many days you're going to commit to being an archer. Find a local club, find a few friends and, uh, and, you know, make sure you commit to it. If you've got the right group, if you don't have the right group and your friends are screw offs, then avoid the friends. But, I would say just you know find a range or find a shop that has leagues to where you can sign up and you can get there. Um, if possible, I know for me, I try to, anytime it comes to training for anything, I try to train away from the crowds. I'm not, I mean, it's not that I'm antisocial, but for example, we have a really cool little archery club uh, here in the smallest little town close by. Uh, it's a great club, but the problem is if I go there the nights where the clubs are, where everyone there is having practice, then it's not practice for me. It's socializing. And if you want to shoot archery as a hobby and as a social activity, then that's perfectly the time for you to go. If you want to shoot archery and you want to progress at it and you want to train at it and you want to like be someone like me where you have a laser-like focus and you're specifically there for a task of what am I working on, what do I want to do, and am I becoming better this week than last week, and am I completing what I need to do, um, then 100% find the downtimes. I have four memberships to gyms and the reason I do and I have my own the reason I do is because I want to be there when no one else is there I want to be able to get in my own zone I want I don't want to talk I don't want to communicate a lot of times I have sunglasses I have earplugs I have hats I have hoodies um not that and I've had a few times people have come up to me and said like I know you don't like people talking to you so I'm sorry I don't want to be that guy but if I'm there, I do have a task. I try to take my phone. I try to. I actually have a different phone, uh, the phone that I'm, people are watching right now with the live feed. That's one. That's my bat phone. There's like three or four people that have that number. Then there's my re- my regular phone. On my bat phone is where I have all my music and all of my motivational stuff. Um, and I can take that into the gym and I can work out without the distraction. Um, and really focus on getting it done. Same's true with archery. Um, I'll go into club. I'll go into my archery thing. I'll turn my main phone off. I'll put my backup phone on. 
I'll put on the tunes that I like and I just get in the zone and shoot and just get in the zone and I go there with a specific task. Um, try to find one thing that you want to work on. I always try personally, I try to take my weakest point and build it up. Um, for example, right now I'm going to tell you, this is what I did today when I went and worked out in the gym. Um, my weak point right now is I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm actually overall very weak, um, just because of, it's been a long hunting season. I'm not eating very much. My caloric intake is very low. I actually feel like my stomach has shrunk to the point where I'm like having to force myself to eat. Um, so I'm, I'm like, I'm not super lean, but I'm pretty lean for me right now. Um, and my stamina, because I'm not eating as much, my stamina is pretty low. I've got a high altitude hunt coming up that I really need to prepare for, even though I feel really worn down. So specifically what I focused on was I'm like, I have to focus 100% on just training the things that I need for this next hunt in 30 days. That's what I have to focus on. Um, you know, I need... I can't, as much as I want to lift some of my upper body and I want to do some kettlebell stuff specifically, I'm just, today I went in, I did five miles on a bike, I did a mile on a stair stepper, and I did a mile on the track, and then I kind of worked in some back work um, just specifically because I need to strengthen my back because I'm not shooting enough arrows right now just because I'm actually... Um, because I'm hunting so much. So uh, that's pretty much what I'm doing. Have a purpose. Recognize distractions and whether or not you can handle it. And make a commitment and write it down. You do those three things and you'll be set, my man. Uh, let's see. Next question here is from Chris the Sin. Well, that's a pretty cool name. Uh, helpful tips for hunting elk on the extended archery. Where are they likely to be on the mountain? Uh, extended archery, I don't know how extended you mean. Like if you're meaning like late season, they may not be on the mountain. Uh, those times of year you need to find out where they're wintering, where they're pattering, and try to pattern like even when Andy was, he went and was hunting um, by Park City during the rut. He was at a part. He was, I mean, it was hot and heavy. Rut was happening. Um, he ended up going back, I think, two weeks later. And he called me. He's like, man, this is like a different planet. This is like totally different. He's like, we're seeing some elk, but they're just not doing that whole thing. And I said, listen, dude, you need to glass pattern intercept that's what you have to do and so that's what he did he patterned and intercepted uh and that's what you're gonna have to do find out where they're wintering pattern their movement you're not gonna call them just try to either get to where they're feeding or get in between bedding and feeding or try to get to where you can see them feeding at first light and when they start to move off that then try to intercept keep the wind right um you may need to knock on some doors um, to see if you can try to get somewhere where you can you know get by some pivots or things like that um let's see here um let's see pass uh 
PASC43 is asking, also, I got a buck in velvet, um, but decided to just peel it off um, because it was mostly damaged. The antlers are just pure white now. What can I do to brown them underneath? Um, so there's a couple things you can do. One, you can either go get like a willow or something and like rub them on there and actually take some bark and, you know, rub it on there to try to get that discoloration in there. Or you could also just take them to a taxidermist and tell them that you want to have a little stain put on there. Uh, and they can lightly stain it. Don't tell them to go crazy because I've seen them stain some horns where they look really stupid. Um, so just say you want some light stain or you can, you might have to go out, pretend your deer rubbing on trees and rub in there and get some of that stain from the bark on there. Ninety seven Chad scope configuration for indoors. Uh, for indoors, I normally shoot at the most a six power which is a 0.7 diopter um, with my 29 millimeter Sherlock lens. A four power to a six power are good for most people that are indoor shooters. What I want you to be careful about though is recognizing how you feel about having that magnification because I'm used to that. Magnification also magnifies movement. It magnifies the target and makes the ten ring look bigger, but it also magnifies the movement in your peep. So if you're someone that's struggling with target panic or you're struggling with learning to like cover the target, then magnifying that and magnifying your movement, it might be too much to accept for one time. So if you are struggling with that, a lower power or no power, I think could be a better asset to you than not than having power. And honestly, uh, one of the rounds that I've shot in my office here, uh, which was a, a time where I shot a clean round at US Nationals or NFA Nationals, um, it's a five spot face that I shot clean with a hunting bow and it was with um, a big pin. The pin was big, there was no magnification, and it covered the entire white of the entire thing. Um, so I just sat there and just covered up the whole spot and pulled through and, uh, and it worked. So don't feel like you have to shoot a huge stabilizer or you have to shoot a six power lens. Like a lot of that crap for most people um, especially kids that are trying to just look like uh, look like you have the coolest setup. If it looks cool but you can't control it, it's not cool. Uh, and you know, like I said, recognize that too. With you know, if you just sometimes I see people's bows and it's like, holy cow! Um, when did Inspector Gadget loses <laughs> loses bow <laughs> because there's so much stuff on there that there's just likes to again simplicity helps you learn it the more you keep adding and adding in the harder it is to really perfect something perfectly you know you look i would imagine i'll ha i would have to ask rogan but i would imagine really really good pool players they probably have very very specific cues that they learn and they probably play for very very specific tournaments or tables and i highly doubt that they're just 
changing that every single time. You have to really use one thing enough to where you get the feel with that and learn that stroke. And I think that plays into another question um, that I remembered seeing uh, before. Um, oh, well, it's actually right here. So MyCock underscore 8914 says, any advice for someone just getting into 3D? Should I buy a longer axle axle bow or just use my hunting bow? So that's a good question. If you're a part-time target archer but a full-time hunter and that's really what you're doing, then I can tell you that instead of having a bow that is so different than what you're going to hunt with, for me, why I feel like I'm accurate and I feel like I'm a, a fairly good bow hunter is because I set up my target bows to be very, very similar to my hunting bows and it lets me transition back and forth fairly easy. If I have one that feels like, you know, it's almost like having two different children, having to like, I don't want to have to like switch to one and then all of a sudden have to have this learning curve of, oh yeah, wait a minute, I realize now, on this one, I definitely have to super pay attention to my hand. But on this one, I got to really pay attention to the back wall because it's wanting to go forward faster than my other bow. I really feel like learning finesse and learning how to hold on a back wall and that breakover and how you come in and learning that valley and learning that preload and learning that tension that is something that if you really learn that with every one of your bows, it's invaluable. And if you're going to shoot 3D part-time, don't be afraid to get a hunting. You know, hunting bows shoot great, especially today. The hunting bows shoot great speeds for 3D. Um, years ago, and I'm talking 20 years ago when I wrote for Archery Focus Magazine, Denise Parker wanted me to write an article called Can, um, Changing My 3D Bow Over to Hunting. And I said, well, dang, that's easy. That's all I do. At the time, I only had one bow. So literally all I would do is um, my 3D bow at the time, I was shooting ACC 349s. So I took my gluing points out, put inserts in, put broadheads on. I literally unscrewed my single pin scope and put a multi-pin cage on the front of my Sherlock and took a 30 inch stabilizer off and put on a 10 inch stabilizer and I was hunting uh, and changed my peep height or my peep size and that was it and I feel like I was able to instantly go out with a hunting bow and shoot it I felt damn near as good as my target bow uh, because it's not as good because it's I'm not as magnified you know, remember a lot of these videos where I'm shooting my bow outside at 100 yards, like that kill cliff can I shot. Um, I'm shooting a 29 thousandths fiber. There's no magnification, and I'm shooting a giant hunting peep sight. Now, if I went and had a choke down peep sight and had my magnified scope with a single pin, I could be a little bit more accurate but when it comes to me really feeling my bow and knowing my shot and knowing my break um, they're so similar that they feel really good um, so that's what I really liked lately about like when Hoyt um, came out with like the hyper edge the cam was the same cam 
So that's kind of what's cool. I'm looking, I'm really looking for, I know there's a lot of you out there that ask me to compare Ultras and the new bows. Um, the only one I have right now is the Carbon RX-1. Um, the th- and it's the shorter one. So um, the other ones are all ordered. I got some custom color configurations coming. So there's a little bit of, of a delay. But when they come, uh, I'll be the first to tell you what my thoughts are on there. Um, let's see here. Next question is asking, um, do I remove uh, the metatarsal gland? So the the tarsal gland, the scent gland on the inside legs of the deer. If I'm going to be decoying, having that that tarsal gland is really good. So if you know you're going to be decoying and someone you know shoots a buck, go and right away before they remove uh, the insides of that buck or anything, go ahead and cut those tarsal glands off. Just cut right down under the skin to the white part of the leg um, and remove those tarsal glands off the inside hocks, put them in a bag. And a lot of times, if you've ever watched video footage of me with a decoy, you'll notice that my decoy's head looks all fuzzy. Those are actually tarsal glands. I just set them on his forehead. And uh, (laughs) there's been a couple times where... um, Sometimes when you hunt all day, you just have these conversations in your head. You start to lose your mind. And there's been some times um, where I've been hunting with a decoy and I've had bucks come into my decoy and they'll come up to it and they'll start to smell it. And then the look that they make on their face (laughs) when they smell my decoy's head they kind of get this look on their face like, damn, you, you smell like ass on your head. <laughs> it's I've seen some of the funniest faces, but I do use that tarsal gland because it's very good for helping the deer give in to your decoy. Um, and it's also a curiosity s- smell. If you hang them in a tree, they'll walk right up to them. Um, they work really well. You'll want to put them out in front of you. Um, don't put them underneath you because if things swing behind you, they're going to literally going to come right up to where you're sitting. They're going to smell you as well. So putting them upwind of you, but still within bow range, you could definitely have something come in. Uh, and if someone does shoot a doe, especially during this time of the year, same thing. Uh, that tarsal gland from a doe can work really, really well. Um, there's been a lot of questions on whether or not I use doe bleats. Um, yeah, certain times I'll use a doe bleat. Um, normally I'll use a doe bleat if I try to grunt at a buck and he doesn't respond. I'll use a doe bleat. Um, but, you know, I've found that if a doe is with a buck, um, that doe is not going to come over to another doe. Um, if anything, she'll take them away. Um, sometimes bucks will respond to doe bleats because they'll think, okay, if there's a fawn over there, there's a doe, or they'll respond to a fawn bleat. They'll say, okay, I can hear a fawn over there, so there's probably a doe with her, and they start to make that association. Um, I personally try grunts more than bleats, but there's definitely times where I have done bleats. Um, with the bleat, I actually like the little can. It, I mean, it works good enough for a bleat especially works good like 
um, for the fa- for the doe or fawn bleat. Um, I don't like it necessarily for the buck side of things, and I've never really found a grunt tube to where when you pinch down on the reed that it sounds that good as a bleat, uh, but they can work. Uh, let's see, next question here is from Brett. Wagner is asking, is there a functional design difference between the Elevate Rest and the AAE Pro Drop for someone planning to uh, keep the cage in the whale tail? So there are definitely some differences. Um, There's several differences from what I made. One, the cage is different, totally different. The new one is unbreakable. Um, obviously the bracket, it's one bracket now fits all. So there's an octagon for the whale tail and the blades. The angle of the rest from the factory is pitched at a different angle as well. And my new flippers have a different magnet in them as well. And the lever arm that comes off is a completely different lever arm, which I personally wanted. Um, they have like a teardrop lever arm where my arm is, is more of a P shape the way it comes through and where it allows you to set and how it allows you to take it down. It is different. And if you have to move your rest far enough to the left, it actually fits under that bracket, uh, which is important without binding on the spring, which some people, um, have had happen. Um, and then also my lower limb brackets, like the new one that I made for Botex and for Matthews, uh, you're going to want those instead of that big plastic crazy thing. So, And then also on my rest, um, I also made now the new Elevate 2.0s will come with a spacer block for the cage. So if you're shooting a uh, Botex or an Elite where the the riser is very thick, so the cage is a little bit more on the inside appearance-wise of the actual center shot of the bow. You can now shim it to where um, it'll, since you'll stack that little block on the inside, it'll bring your cage further out, so the cage actually is perfectly center around your center shot. So uh, that's the difference. So yeah, there is difference, and it's green which is almost the most awesome thing about it. Just kidding. It's not that awesome. Um, let's see here. Um, anchor point changes while hunting. Uh, this is from Matto. Matt Oprach, I believe is the name. Sorry if I hacked it. Um, anchor point changes while hunting. For example, your face mask, neck gaiter, uh, hunting in cold weather, um, etc. So, yes. Um, I hunt with a half inch shorter bow for hunting season. The reason being is because once I get bulked up, I feel restricted. I feel like, you know, just the amount of just where my rear arm and, you know, with kind of the mass of my bicep and forearms, uh, and my clothes, it binds up. So I don't have as much flexibility and range as when I'm just, shooting with my uh speedos and and no shirt so i like to shorten up my bow just a little bit for hunting season and uh i feel like because it is a little bit shorter 
Um, the strings at a better place on my face to wear with a face mask and things like that, I'm okay. But the other thing you got to recognize too is the big reason why I coach the technique and the form that I do is so that all of you out there can actually shoot with clearance with these types of things. Um, you know, beards, um, you know, if you've got this big, manly, awesome, super beard, uh, if you learn to anchor, draw your bow until it stops and bring the anchor to the side of your face instead of digging down where you lay that big old ZZ top on top of your arrow, uh, then that's going to cause a problem and you're going to lose some beard hair. You don't want that. You got a manly beard, keep it. So, Draw the bow till it stops, your hands on the side of your face, then bring your release hand over to your anchor position, index fingers under the jaw, middle fingers over the jaw. And the reason I have that is because that is what dictates the position of your arrow shaft. So if the arrow shaft is lower on the chin, then it's more like it is going to contact a face mask. Uh, if it's low on the chin, it will also contact a neck gaiter. If it's low on the chin, it means your anchor's low, which means you're probably thumb behind the back or knuckles behind the jaw, which also is going to cause contact. So back to my basics. Draw the bow till the bow stops. Bring the release hand over to the face. That also helps bring the elbow into the position that you need, and you'll find that your arrow shaft is in fact not contacting your face, just the back tail of the knock, and it's good for beards, it's good for neck gaiters, it's good for bell clavas, it's good for Jabba the Hutt. Every single person will be happy with exactly what's going on if you do it that way. Um, okay, this is a good question. Vintage underscore 83 with the Boba Fett uh, picture. You are asking a super good question. It takes me a few shots to get going. What's a good way to assure that my first shot is accurate when hunting? Mostly when it's still dark before in the morning. Well, if it's like if if it's dark and you can't shoot, then you're kind of screwed. Um, you know, if you can, make a few shots. Don't be afraid to just blank bail a few shots uh, when you go out. You know, put a put a target up right where you get all your gear on. And when you leave the house, just kind of pull back and pull through a few shots. That could be an awesome place to have a little silverback sitting there. But let's just say you can't do that. What do you do? What do I do? Um, sometimes there's weeks and weeks that go by without me shooting so what do i do i visualize i literally sit there and think about what my shot is going to be like and how awesome it's going to be and i talk think about my steps i talk through them i talk to myself and say okay if that buck's coming you need your feet right you're gonna grab your bow right Raise that bow up really slow and just draw that bow back until it stops. And you're going to anchor first. Before anything, you're going to anchor. Get that anchor tight. Get the index under that jaw. You're going to adjust your head to where you're looking through the peep. 
strings on the tip of your nose. And you're just going to move your body slow until you're on that target. And then you're just going to let off that safety and you're just going to pull, pull. And you're going to watch that arrow go in. That's what you need to do. Because when you don't do it, you end up shooting something through the neck. Because, or in the ball sack, because everything goes out the window. And what happens with most hunters, because I saw a question from one of you on here that was saying why you've missed uh, the last few shots out of your tree stand. Most likely it's because when people get into a hunting situation, their form and their technique goes out the window. And what they want to do is just get that pin to the target. They put the pin on the target and they pull the bow back and they're just trying to look through the peep. I've seen my dad do it. I saw Ben do it. I've seen a lot of people do it and I've probably done it. You don't want to pull the peep to your eye. If you do that, then your anchor goes out the window and if you have a neck gaiter, if you have that manly, luscious beard, you can end up ripping some of it out can end up slapping your arm. There's all kinds of stuff that can that can happen. <laughs> Someone just made the comment, no one likes a ball sack shot. Indeed. Um, indeed, no one does. But you have to go through your steps, and mental rehearsal is absolutely critical for performance of any type. And the reality is hunting is performance. It's a performance activity you have to perform in the clutch moment and that's why like with rogan he was so excited to be able to go to um lanai because he was able to have some experience multiple multiple times to where it was almost like him being able to be somewhere where he was doing jujitsu and actually being able to roll with someone someone instead of just going through the fundamentals on a mat because going through fundamentals on a target is like going through fundamentals on a mat. You have to be able to have some real life game speed. And if you don't do that, which most of you out there, you know, don't because you're waiting all year for one opportunity and here it is. What do you do? You got to go through those fundamentals Roll with the drills, roll with the drills, talk yourself through it, talk about what you're going to do. And then what will happen is you'll find out that that shot will end up happening exactly how you want because you talk through it. Um, okay, Mr. Brian Kessler is asking, what is the best way to clean dirt, sand, and grime out of your bow during and after season? Uh, compressed air and also a Q-tip are really good ways wiping things down um even when my bow gets wet and things like that i've actually got um i don't know what you'd call it it's i guess it's just like a big blow dryer i bought one to to dry off my um i had a custom motorcycle several several years ago i had like a a titan motorcycle and it was pretty cool but it had a ton of chrome on it so I ended up buying this like super high pressured like reverse vacuum thing that just blew hot air. And I use that, especially when I come in and my bow's drenched, I'll just 
blow the crap out of that thing and dry it off as fast as possible. Um, that really helps one, but a Q-tip is a great way. What you don't want to do is start oiling things down or people that put wax or oil on their cable slide, slides or cable rods, that's a terrible thing to do. Um, putting oil down by your bottom cams, those are sealed bearings, so the bearing should function regardless. So don't, don't use oil down there because you're going to end up attracting more oil. So just wipe it off. Um, use a, um, like I said, Q-tips work great. Range finder recommendations. So uh, for range finder recommendations, I'm personally um, using um, a Leupold range finder. I really, really like it. Um, I'm going to look up the model number right here while we're talking um, because I don't know the exact model number of it. Sorry about that. But um, it it works awesome and it allows you to actually adjust it for uh, for hunting <clears throat> with a bow. So the one I have is, uh, I'm pretty sure this is it. Yeah. So... The one I've got is the RX-1200i. Um, it's pretty much got angle compensation built into it, uh, which is really, really important for uh, any bow hunter uh, and works awesome. It's small. Um, pretty much you push a button, point it on there, click it. It'll give you the degree of angle if you are shooting on elevation. But it'll give you the true range, and then immediately it'll flash what the range is with your cut immediately following that. So it's it's really, really good. And again, that's the Leupold range finder. Um, just tell, make sure you tell them you want the one with the um, angle compensation built into it. Um, you'll really, really like it. Um, super good. So... Uh, let's see here. Uh, that was doobly answered that one. Best way to clean a skull at home for mounting your deer. So let me tell you the way you don't want to do it. What you don't want to do is the way that the Brad of all Brads on Instagram did when he was at Tim Kitts's house. That's how you don't want to do it. And it's worth you going back into his Instagram feed or Brad, why don't you just repost that video of you learning to power wash your skull for the first time. You don't want to do it that way, but I just did one today. Here's what I do. You take the skin, take the skin off the skull, remove the bottom jaw. You pretty much pull the jaw and cut the jaw meat and pull the bottom jaw off. Um, you hold the eyes with pliers and take them out. Uh, Sorry if for some of you are getting weirded out right now, but that's what you do. And then um, you put it in a big pot. I have for the actual burner itself, I have my old turkey fryer burner, but I've got a big pot, like a camping pot that I bought at Walmart. You can get them pretty cheap. Um, and I'll fill water till it's right at the top edge of the skull. I'll take tin foil and wrap it around the base of the horns and probably the first eight or so inches of the horns just so that they don't get all um, steamed up and change color. 
Then what I'll do is, um, again, the water's right level with the top of the head. I'll get that water roll like a slow rolling boil. You don't want it too hot. You want it on a slow boil. Put in a little bit of Dawn dish soap that helps break down the fats. Um, and then take a big piece of tin foil and try to just kind of shape it or a couple pieces, shape it around so it's fitting on the top of the pot. And what you essentially want is you want that steam to stay inside of the pot so that it slowly steams that skin that's left on the very top edge of the skull. And after you slow cook it for about two hours, you don't want to, if you cook it really hot, you can end up like pretty much breaking down the teeth. You don't want to do that. So um, cook it for a few hours and then take it out. You'll see it. You'll, you can kind of lift it up and you'll see um, everything's just starting to kind of boil and peel up and lift off. Um, all the meat would turn gray. Essentially, it's like boiling meat. And uh, go and get a pressure washer or um, go to a local car wash and You'll just sit there, you know, it will take some time. It'll take you about 15 minutes of pressure washing, but you can pressure wash every bit of that off the full exterior part of the head first. Um, I save the brain part for last, uh, but do, you know, you literally have to get every little bit out from around the base of the horns, all around the thing. You kind of have to power wash straight down the nasal canal, really good, blow out any type of cartilage that isn't bone. Then you kind of have to flip it over and just hold it lightly with your foot. This is the tip. You have to stick the pressure washer into that brain cavity and kind of make sure it's fully covering it so when you squeeze it, it's going to start you know, pretty much liquefying everything that's in there and blowing it out the front of the deer instead of back up out the top. And yeah, that's it. More or less, you're you're boiling it for a few hours on a slow boil. Um, for a few hours, you can lift it out. You'll see everything's pretty much just falling off. And then just get a pr- pressure washer with high pressure. Pressure wash that thing all the way off. Want to make sure you really just move it as round as much as you can inside of that brain cavity. Get all the tear ducts and everything cleaned completely out. Then just hang it, let it dry for a few days, and uh, and then you can tape the horns off if you want. Tape them all off really good, and you can. I use hammered bronze spray paint on the skull, and it works really good. Um, Let's see here. I've got several other questions coming through. Um, well, we might as well get to them. I just got to kind of get low on my phone power here, people. I got to plug in. So um, and we'll keep going on these questions. I might as well give you guys your money's worth for free. Uh, let's see here. Um, Brandon Schrader's asking, how do you manage your expectations uh, in while hunting, I had a good buck around me. Um, I had good bucks around me all morning, but an absolute toad tending a doe, um, and literally on the other side of the tree, but just ran out of daylight. So yeah, this is a hard, this is a hard decision to make one. Most of us, it's a good one to have to make, but, um, most of us will have to make that. So that's, 
that's a tough call. You have to know. Let me tell you what I don't want you to do. What I don't want you to do is be someone who loves hunting, puts in a lot of work all year round, and then gets into the field and tries to set their expectations based off what they see on TV. That's what I don't want you to do. I don't really mind what you want to do, but I'm going to tell you what you don't want to do. You don't want to let your expectations get to a level to where what you're seeing on TV is something that you think is reality because even myself included um you know there's people that go to places that there's there there's people that go on one hunt that costs more than I spend on hunting an entire year and those those places they're gonna shoot 370 bulls or 390 bulls like that's gonna happen when i go to alberta i have not passed a single legal bull that has ever been in front of me when i go to alberta i'm i'm up there for seven days um sometimes maybe a little longer but normally about seven days even with my mule deer, um, the mule deer that I shot this year was cool. My elk was really nice, but I've also been there where I've shot elk with one horn. Um, I've shot barely legal three by threes. Um, there was a year where I only had one elk tag and it was an over the counter tag in Idaho. And I went there and shot a bull that was like maybe 150 inches. Uh, and I was, totally happy with that uh because i knew i wasn't going to be there long i didn't know the area all that so the other thing too is like for example when ben came here i talked about the fact of we took the morning with ben to work on his bow got him sighted in got him shooted i or shooting i worked with him a little bit and got him to where i felt like he was shooting good enough for us to go hunting and we went out we actually went out. This is a good lesson, too. We didn't go to our stand until 9.30 in the morning. We shot his buck at 1 o'clock. Um, there was a couple things to learn about that. Uh, one was I always really try to have a spot somewhere that is pretty much like a free-for-all spot that allows me to get in and get out no matter what time, if I have to get into a stand late or if I have to come out of a stand early, I always have one or two spots that allow me to get in and get out. They may not be the best spots, but they're spots that I can get into and out of regardless of the time. And that's what we ended up doing just based on the fact it was 930 before we had got him sighted in and he was comfortable and shooting good. Um, and, you know, he shot his buck and it was an awesome buck, and he was super happy. It was the biggest buck he ever shot with his bow. Um, but then the next day, two and a half, three miles away on a completely different property, I shot my buck. And he was like, man, I just, it's hard for me not to think that, you know, if I would have passed that deer, you know, could I have got one like this? And I just said, listen, dude. You're here for five days. I'm here for the entire season. So the decisions I make on where I'm going are kind of 
structured around the fact that I don't feel like I have to shoot a deer today, tomorrow, the next day, or the next day. I have a whole season to hunt. You don't. And I said, Ben, what you have to realize is in one day's time, these deer could be on lockdown. And you're not going to see three or four deer in a day. You're not going to see two or three bucks. You know, we had seen, I think we saw three bucks between 1030 and one o'clock. And he shot the third buck that we saw. And I I felt like that was a, a really cool deer. And and he did too. And he was, you know, I don't want to make it out like he didn't. But I've also had those same exact thoughts as Ben where I've gone on a hunt. I've shot a deer on the first day or an elk. And I thought, well, man, I wonder what I could have shot if I would have hunted the entire time. Well, let me tell you, I've had times where I've hunted the entire time and went home without something. And I didn't like it. And I thought I would have been totally happy with that deer on the first day. So, um, your expectations should really be based on what you have accomplished and achieved as a hunter. If you feel like you've achieved a lot, if you feel like you holding out is something that you're going to be able to be okay with and live with, then a hundred percent hold out. But if you feel like you're, you know, a bird in the hand. Listen, I've seen a lot of bucks. The buck that I saw the other day, I saw several good deer that did not give me opportunity. Um, fortunately, the buck that I really wanted happened to come from miles in a different place and gave me an opportunity, but there are other ones that did not. Um, for those of you watching, they're making me shut down again. So thank you again for watching. And I'm going to finish up this podcast without all of you. Uh, so tune in tomorrow for the ending of the podcast. Um, so the next question here is, um, let's see, from Britt Hickey. And Britt is asking specifically, uh, when you're hunting woods that are mostly swamp can, and you can only hunt the outskirts, uh, and the and the deer don't really come out until dark. What do you do? Well, certain times of year they probably won't, but other times of year they probably will. Um, so it's tough. Sometimes animals really understand their sanctuaries. Sometimes they don't. Um, but you know, down where I hunt in Mississippi with my family. There's a lot of swamps down there, and you know that's kind of where the term swamp donkey comes from. Um, is uh, you know those deer get in those swamps and they just live in there, but then once the rut happens, they start to come out. So being able to, uh, you know, they've got to probably come out to eat at some type of food source. So finding where that is is important, um, or just figure out a way to get in the thick of it. You know, I know if you have to get permission, that can be tough. Uh, but if you don't have to get permission and you just, you know, it's just one of those deals where it's hard to do, wait for the time to be the best possible and get in there in the thick stuff with with the rest of the monsters. Um, let's see here. Uh, Guter01 is asking... When are you going to come out with your own stabilizer? And when can I buy a knock to it? Um, 
Not going to do a stabilizer just because I do like my fuse stabilizers. Um, I shoot an older one, but I really like it. Um, Noctuits are, I think, getting finished up at the anodizers, and Noctuits will be going back on the website uh, before or in time for Christmas, for sure in time for Christmas. Um, So make sure you've kind of saved up and you're ready for that if it's something that you want. Uh, because I'll let you know when they're coming, and when I do, uh, you better be ready. Uh, let's see here. Uh, I don't know how to pronounce this name. Pomatoni, I guess. Um, I love shooting my RX-1 and want to shoot it as far as my sight housing will allow. Can I gain distance and room on my sight tape by sliding my dovetail out? So, no, you actually have to bring it in. So when you bring your sight closer to the bow, you will shorten your gap and make your gap tighter and it'll let you get more distance. The further out you take it, the, the bigger your scale will be and the less yardage you'll get. Uh, the other thing too is the lower your peep sight is um, on your string, uh, the harder it'll be for you to get distance out of your sight. So if you're one of those people who shot traditional archery for a long time and now you're shooting a compound and you like to draw back and kind of put your release hand more on the side of your cheek and your peep sights really low in your string then you're going to struggle getting those longer distances uh let's see here if you only had eight acres to hunt aside from public land this is from smittles the great uh how would you go about setting it up to bring deer in and have the best chance of holding them there and hunt them and not have them run onto another property? My property is mostly creek bottom with one side and hill slope on the other. So here's the deal. Eight acres is not going to hold a buck. Uh, one of the farms I hunt, 250 acres won't hold a buck. 500 acres won't hold a buck. Uh, I had this conversation with Bill Winky. Bill and I were sitting in his house and we're sitting on his back porch. And right now, Bill owns right at about a thousand acres. We were talking about this, and you know, the conclusion was even at a thousand acres, he can't hold every buck that he has. Now, if he has a buck that is dead center in the middle of that property, there's a good chance that it can lit. Like the percentage is very high. But on eight acres, definitely not. Um, They're going to be moving off there. They're going to be moving through. Um, So if you have a small piece of property like that, I've said in the past, if you're wanting to just hunt and have opportunity, then what I would say is, Find the one thing. There's three things deer need, right? They need food. They need cover. They need water. Um, So which of those three things is not available off your property? Because if it's not, then that's what you want on your property so that you can maximize having your deer there. Um, So... uh, I can tell you that if your main goal is to hold big bucks, and depending on what is around you, 
Um, if you're going out there much, if you have a dog, if you have people that go out and play in the yard, chances are you're not going to hold a buck on those eight acres. Um, all that stuff is too much pressure for a mature deer. Uh, if those things aren't happening and it's an eight acre piece that you own and you just go out there to hunt, then I would say if your focus is getting a buck on there and holding a buck on there, then you really need to, well, what you really need to do is probably make that thing as thick and dense as possible to where they would actually see that as a safe zone or as a bedding zone, and they're more likely to stay there. Um, Or the other option would be to create a very good food source right there to where it was a main draw and you could pull does in there and leave those does be until, depending on where you're located, if you're in the Midwest, until about that week of, you know, right about Halloween and get out there to where those first bucks are going to be coming to check those does in that area. Let's see here. Next question is from Tommy Schwart. He's asking, Hey, John, I was wondering if it's possible to shorten the draw length by half inch on spiral X cams. Um, If so, how do you do it? Um, So depending on what generation of spiral X cams you have, some are module and you can adjust the modules on the cams slightly. Um, Otherwise, if they're not, I can tell you a couple things that you can do to shorten draw length would be shortening string. Um, A half inch or five eighths inch shorter string could certainly shorten that up quite a bit for you. I don't know if you'll get the full half inch, but you'll get really, really close. If you go much more than that, you'll actually start to move past... um, the position in the cam where it starts to have efficiency. So in the very first spiral cams, um, you'll notice there was actually little lines on the cams. And those lines were mainly set for knowing where your cam positioning was or your cam indexing was. Um, So depending on your string and cable build, you would move or index that cam to a different rotation and those lines would show you where that rotation was using your limb as a reference Um, and if you shortened your string or too much or if you shorten your cables too much you would either have that cam too short in that indexing position or too long and you kind of needed to be within a certain realm so I would try the half inch. The other thing you need to recognize too is if your limbs are backed out, then you're gaining draw length as well. So having your limbs tightened all the way down and then shortening that string is going to be the way to get that as short as possible. Um, Showtime underscore 99 underscore is asking, what camera did you use uh, to video Ryan's arrow? Uh, to find out that the spine was off. So this is in reference to something that I did with Ryan Bronco when he was here at the house. Um, I was looking at his arrow flight and I was looking at why the arrows um, were having kind of some very unattainable groupings. Um, So I actually did a slow-mo 
just using my iPhone and was able to just get the angle and the position of the camera right to where I could silhouette that arrow to see how the arrow was paradoxing. And what I found was the arrow was actually creating a snake bend instead of a true paradox, which that uh, was an indicator of kind of what we needed to do. Um, So iPhone, iPhone 6 or higher with slow motion. And I guess the new iPhone X, which somehow or another Andy Stumpf got his before I got mine. I got mine through the Apple business. Mine was actually in route sooner, but somehow or another he got second to air and got his faster than me, sent me a message with talking crap. And I guess you have talking emojis, which is pretty dang cool. I'm going to see if I can find it and get it to play it for all of you. So let me see. I'll play you Andy's. Let me see. Here we go. Oh, it's not working. I don't know how it works. Here we go. This new phone's awesome. Don't ever text me again unless it's talking poop. <laughs> that was a that was a shit emoji, by the way, um, with Andy Stump's voice. So, um, yeah. So you, probably the new iPhone X will have even better footage, but that's how it is. All right. Um, let's see here. Kyle Hansen, 07, is saying, would like to know in detail, oh, great, here we go, another detailed question, where you set your knocking point and rest on your RX-1. In detail, it is 90 degrees. Bing! That's it. Set it at 90, and it worked good. All right, last question here. Holy crap, we made it. And I've got four minutes until we hit the two-hour mark. I've been out of, well, I'm kind of just refilling my my Yeti here with what was left of my Blackberry Lemonade Kill Cliff, but there's no um, margarita left in the bottom of it. So that sucks. Uh, so last question, Jody.Fleming81. EHD and the preventative that you mentioned in the feed that you've been using, I hope it worked. So yeah, I did have EHD all around me this past year here in Iowa. Um, I was fortunate not to get any. um, And I used a product from Garland Animal Wellness. Uh, It's a new pellet that has... A proprietary substance in it that prevents biting insects, including ticks, gnats, and there's we're kind of trying to do some non-official studies uh, with EHD because I let them know that I had EHD in my area and was really curious. Funny enough, so in Iowa, you're not allowed to bait. You are allowed to feed during the non-season. Um I actually got pictures of this buck that I shot, Payload. Um, He was a regular, a regular to that um, Repel Tech, 100%. And he was super massive. And uh, the Repel Tech, it doesn't, the problem, I shouldn't say problem, but if they're eating it, it's working. But 
Um, it also gets out of their system. So if they, you know, it's a lot like us. If we've got, you know, if you're putting off on all the time, which I know it's not off, but, um, you know, if you put off on all the time, then it repels. Well, not all the time. Thermocell will definitely do it. Um, but if you stop using it, then obviously it stops. So it's hard for me to say um, that how clean this buck was was relative to that. But I do want to feel like it was, I feel like it was relatable because I know what my deer were like in the past. This buck that I shot um, did not have any ticks on him. He was completely tick-free, super clean coat. It was like shiny, and it was the heaviest deer I've ever shot. And his muscle and his horn mass was just stupid. Um, so again, that's it was Garland Animal Wellness. It is the pellet, and it was the pellet with the Repel Tech. And if you want the number... Uh, well, you can go to garlandanimalwellness.com um, and you can find it there. Let's see. I'm looking here. Uh, just trying to tell you quick. Uh, let's see. Whoa. So phone number, at least the one that just popped up in my Google, is 405-285-5430. Um, that's the number. And again, it's the pellet, and it's the pellet with Repel Tech. That's what you want. So with that, ooh, just hit the two-hour mark, 201, 202, 203. With that, I'm getting out of here, freaks. Uh, I got a boat to build. I got a wife to snuggle. And we're going to go find, oh, damn it, you people made me miss happy hour. It's 26 minutes left. I'm not going to be able to get there in time. So... Yep. Now we're going to have to go with plan B. So thanks everybody. Appreciate it so much. Make sure you please spread the word. Please, please um, leave a review unless it sucks. If it sucks, keep your opinion to yourself. Um, Leave a review on iTunes. Uh, For those of you listening, this is a big, I want to like give you a super high five for this. Um, I actually just got notified we surpassed 4 million downloads for the podcast in 141 episodes. So that's pretty freaking sweet. It's all of you to thank for it. And hey, make sure this is making a big, big difference in my life. Um, You all just click and like on my pictures and stuff on social media. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I... uh, Every one of you that are there are there because you want to be and uh, don't feel like I've ever solicited you guys and I'm pumped about that. So thank you so much. Uh, Got some really cool shirts coming. Uh, Mini Silverbacks are in. The Elevate 2.0s will be here within a few days and that's it. You awesome knock stars. Check you later. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com